Holy Spirit, come. Glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Convict us of our guilt. Regenerate sinners. Baptize people into union with Christ. Adopt orphans as heirs into the family of God. Indwell and illumine and guide and equip and empower us now in these moments for our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus. And we pray this in his mighty name. Amen. This time I will invite you to open the Bible to the Gospel according to John. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. Uh, If you're using one of the Red Bibles under the seats in front of you, the text starts on page 886. 886 in the Red Bibles. Gospel according to John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. Last week, one of the features that we learned of the early movements in John's gospel is how very much happens in a compact amount of time. The reason we know this to be the case is because John left a few time stamps through chapter 1 and chapter 2 that clue us in to the rapid pace here. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 29, John says, the next day. Then in verse 35, we see the same phrase, the next day. Verse 43, we see it again, the next day. Chapter 2, verse 1, points out that the wedding in Cana took place on the third day. And then in verse 12, they stayed for a few days in Cana. Uh, And then finally, chapter 2, verse 13, John alerts us to the fact that the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So you put this together and you discover that all of these events, from the first witness of John the Baptist to the cleansing of the temple in chapter 2, verse 13. All of these events unfold in about a week's time, which is amazing. There's a lot happening here, and it's happening lickety-split as we move through John's gospel. I want to remind ourselves of that. Um, In our text today, chapter 1, verses 35 to the end of the chapter, tell the account of how the very first followers of Jesus came about, five of them in less than 48 hours. Our mission, to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ, began when five disciples were made in less than 48 hours. You want to hear how it happened? Follow along with me as I read. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and he stayed with them. They stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. 
Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathan answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ began with about half a dozen, five to be precise, disciples who were made in less than 48 hours. As I think about that, a number of realities kind of rushed to my mind as I contemplated this this past week. Um, one is a statistic that if you happen to be with us during our church multiplication overview last month with uh, Dan Moose, we learned that uh, for churches that are 10 years or older, it takes an average of 100 people in that congregation, 365 days to win a single person to Christ. That's a startling statistic. For churches that are 10 years or older, and ours is 69, we're going to be 70 next spring. Churches like ours takes a hundred of us one entire year to lead one person to saving faith in Christ. That's depressing, of course, because our mission is to be and make disciples of Jesus. But let's remember that this mission that we have precedes us. It's one that we've inherited. It's not one that we created in 1944 when this church was planted. Um, it's not as accurate to say that Mount Free Church has a mission as it is accurate to say that the mission has a Mount Free Church, right? This is a mission that began 2,000 years ago, and we stepped into just shy of 70 years ago. And our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ actually began with these five disciples who were made in less than 48 hours. Now, to say it again, uh, just to rattle us awake to reality... Uh, What happened inside of two days in John chapter 1 might take the better part of half a decade in a church our size in the 21st century. Wouldn't you love to see that change? Wouldn't it be remarkable if we started to see the tide turn? Are there any hallmarks for disciple-making that we can see in these early movements of John's gospel that we can take and apply that happened in the first century, but we can apply effectively in the 21st. Did you know that there are five disciples of Jesus in less than 48 hours? How did it happen then? Same way it happens today. First principle, point people to Jesus persistently. Point people to Jesus persistently. This is point number one. Now, if we're reading the first chapter of John's gospel piecemeal, We're going to miss this one. But if we step back and we look at the whole of it to this point, something really startling appears. And it has to do with the evangelistic resolve and the determination of the man we call the Baptist, John the Baptist. So chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as as a witness to bear witness about the light 
that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Nevertheless, note, we're not told of any fruit in John's ministry in chapter 1. Not at all. Not a whiff in the prologue of John's gospel. Then in chapter 1, verses 19 to 28, John is testifying again to the supremacy of Christ. And all he meets with is a brick wall of, of skepticism from the priests and the Levites who were sent from the Pharisees. So, strike two. And then in chapter 1, verses 29 to 34, John emerges with just evangelistic guns blazing, doesn't he? Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Later on in verse 34, I've seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. He came baptizing that he would be revealed to Israel. So John is is preaching Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And you can hear crickets chirp. The silence is deafening. You ever stop to think about it? We're not told of anyone who responded in faith that day. Then, in verses 35 to 37, John gets his first nibble. He gets a bite. In fact, he gets two. Two of his disciples are soon to become two of Jesus' disciples. Verse 35 to 37, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now we have the church's first two converts. It's interesting. It's basically a repetition of verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God. In fact, he doesn't say anything different about Jesus in verse 36. In fact, he says far less than what he said in verse 29. But for some reason, the conditions were different this day. And his witness to Christ made an impact. It stuck. In the providence of God, verse 37 happened. The two disciples who were with him heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. That's what it's all about. How did the first two disciples of Jesus come about under God's providence? John's evangelistic endurance. His fortitude. John had what we would call grit. He just kept holding out Jesus to people and eventually too responded in faith. Inside of 48 hours, there were five disciples made, but that's how the first two were made. So the first principle in this text is point people toward Jesus. How's How's your endurance these days? Especially when you meet with resistance, when you have an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with someone. How quickly do you throw in the towel? It's commonly held that the average person hears the gospel seven times before they respond in repentance and faith. I have no reason to doubt that stat. That was true for me, and it might have been true for you. How grateful I am for the patient dedication of people whose names wouldn't mean anything to you but mean the world to me. Joey Fiorino, Evan Monkley, Chris Gerstner, Candace Patton, others who preached the gospel to me over about a 36-month period in Columbia, Missouri. Our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ began when five disciples were made in less than 48 hours, and the first two come about, I think, simply by the old-fashioned determination of John. Point people toward Jesus persistently. Second principle. 
Invite people to Jesus personally. Invite people to Jesus personally. Look with me at verses 38 to 46. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. If one thing shines in these nine verses, it would have to be the role that personal invitation plays in people coming to know Christ. As we unfold these verses, I hope this will be a major league encouragement to you. It was to me as I was preparing this. You may not, probably do not, readily identify with the boldness of John the Baptist, but you probably at least see yourself as capable of what Andrew did or what Philip did. Issued an invitation. Verse 40 says, One of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew. And even then, Peter was a big wheel in the church because he's known as Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Now, fascinatingly, we're not told who the other disciple is alongside Andrew. Um, People have wondered, maybe this was John himself, the son of Zebedee, the author of this gospel. I'd buy that. He never mentions his name. John never mentions his own name at all in the the gospel, at least refers to himself uh, that way. It probably is John who's at Andrew's side here. But he does name Andrew. And verse 40 is explicit. The first thing Andrew does, the first thing he does is go home and he tells his brother. Hmm. He brought him to Jesus, verse 42. Isn't that wonderful? How much did Andrew know about Jesus? Not much. Very, very little. Far less than we do. But he issues an invitation to his brother to join them so they can follow Jesus together. John Calvin, in 1553, looked at this verse and commented, Andrew scarcely has a spark And yet, by means of it, he enlightens his brother. I like that. Andrew scarcely has a spark. Yet, by means of that, he enlightens his brother. Now, Andrew became an apostle, but he wasn't all that special. Andrew was not a standout apostle. He was a rather run-of-the-mill apostle. He was a spark. But that little spark touched a flamethrower named Simon Peter. And everything changes everywhere. Brother becomes the leader of the twelve and the first among the apostles. None of us here is a Simon Peter. 
Most of us are Andrews at best, right? But did you ever stop to think that by your simple invitation, you might become a part of a Simon Peter coming into existence? Just by an invitation. Invitation to follow Jesus, invitation to church, invitation to a Wednesday evening meal. You never know who you're talking to. Um, My hero, the Puritan John Owen, considered the prince of the Puritans, major figure in church history, came to Christ through the particular sermon preached by a country preacher whom history has never named to this day. The story is told that Owen and his friend, I think it was a cousin actually, are uh, headed to see some big deal preacher in London. They, they go to uh, listen to this rock star preacher preach, and it turns out when they get there, he wasn't there. The guy that was on the marquee didn't show up, and some country bumpkin comes into the pulpit and starts preaching. And Owen's cousin uh, is inclined to leave. He says, John, let's just go. And John says, you know, let's just stay. We're here. Let's stay. And the preacher takes for his text Matthew chapter 8, verse 26. Oh, why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Owen was zapped by the Holy Spirit on the spot, and he became a Christian, walked away with his first assurance of salvation. Interestingly, the same thing, almost the identical thing, happened to Charles Spurgeon several hundred years later. Spurgeon, same setup. Young man walks into a country chapel, country preacher whom history has never named, preaching the gospel. Jesus gets a hold of Charles Spurgeon. The conversion of Billy Graham is a similar story, although not exactly the same, because Billy Graham was sure to remember the name so that we would remember it. The man's name was Mordecai Ham. But, I mean, who do you remember in the final analysis, Mordecai Ham or Billy Graham? Um, But isn't it something that although we may not be able to name Mordecai Ham, he was not influential except that he was influential upon the man who was the most influential man for the gospel in the last hundred years. So I hope you get the sense of the point here. As you are faithful to point people toward Jesus and to invite people into fellowship with him and with those who know him, you never know who you might be inviting. You just never know. Some of the coolest stories of how people have found their way to this church are just through a personal invitation. Some people, as I'm looking around in this sanctuary right now, are just the fruit of someone saying, hey, we should come to church. Meet me here at 1030. I'll sit with you. It's wonderful. The relationship between Philip and Nathaniel in verses 43 to 46 is interesting. Philip evidently is converted immediately. You see that? Jesus just commandeers him, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, and he said, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Isn't that great? There's no recorded response from Philip there. It's just done. Just a done deal. Disciple number four is made. Andrew, maybe John, Peter, and now Philip, wasting no time, turns to Nathaniel in verse 45. You see how this happens? Beginning to gather steam here. Philip found Nathaniel. And said, we found him of whom Moses and the law, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, well, come and see. These verses are fantastic too. They remind us of how you deal with a guy like Nathanael. Um, by the way, Nathanael, it's not perfectly clear, but it, he probably is Bartholomew. Nathanael's not a name that we hear uh, outside of 
or rather Bartholomew is, uh, is the name we hear more often, um, but probably Nathaniel is the first name. Bartholomew um, is a composite of Bar, meaning son of, and Ptolemaeus, son of Ptolemaeus. It's the same Nathaniel that appears in chapter 21, verse 2, at the end of John's Gospel. So this is maybe Bartholomew. He's always mentioned with Philip, in any case, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So perhaps this is Bartholomew. Either way, uh, he gets the invite from Philip, but he's suspicious, right? Skeptical. Maybe because he knows the prophecy from Micah chapter 5, 2, that says that the Savior is to be born in Bethlehem, city of kings. Maybe. But I think there's more to it. There's a tone here. Um, Nathaniel has contempt for Nazareth, actually. A lot of people did in the first century. It was the armpit of Israel. It was an obscure town. Can anything good come from Nazareth? But Philip doesn't get stuck in the molasses of Nathaniel's uncertainty. Do you see this? This is how we handle skepticism. Philip simply says, come and see. He does a sidestep right around his suspicion, right around his uncertainty, and just invites him. See for yourself. See what you think. So, the brief survey here of these verses, I hope this impresses upon you just how very powerful a personal invitation can be. That's it. A personal invitation. People don't have to have everything together for us to invite them in. Preferably not. Invite them in with all of their doubts, with all of their history. This can go a lot of ways. I remember a local eating establishment here one time. There was uh, one of the workers working, and I just said, you know, we should read the Bible together sometime. It was just kind of a mix of things together, people around and so on, but I just sort of floated it out there. Never quite took, um, but I'm, I'm not giving up. I'm praying for this guy. Um, other times, you just invite him to church. Statistically, it's amazing how often people will respond to an invitation to church. People are happy to be invited and often take up the... Um, invitation, seriously. Maybe you've got a group that meets at your place or you go to one that you go every week. Just invite a neighbor. So, you know, we, we'd love to have you. We'd love for you to come. We meet Wednesday night or whatever it is. This isn't all that difficult. So the first point today is to point people toward Jesus persistently. The second principle is invite people to Jesus personally. Now, why? This is all our work, but why, why Jesus? What is it that Jesus can do in this whole issue of disciple-making that we cannot do? Uh, well, so many things. Praise be to God, that's the case. Because um, we can't change people. Only Jesus can. We point people toward Jesus persistently. We invite them to Jesus personally because only Jesus can. Four things. Assess people's motives. Change people's identities. Judge people's character and connect people to heaven. Only Jesus can judge people's motives, change people's identities, judge people's character, connect people to heaven. You just get the sense that these are not things that are in our hands to accomplish, but they are in Jesus' hands. So let's take a look at each one of these as we close. First of all, Jesus, only Jesus can assess people's motives. Back to verse 38. Now remember, John the Baptist pointed Andrew and John to Jesus, and they start following Christ. Verse 38 says, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? 
I, I like the ESV's translation here because, as usual, it's spot-on literal. Um, but the NIV is slightly more helpful. Uh, it cuts to the chase. Jesus says, what do you want? Those are Jesus' first words in the Gospel of John. What do you want? And as John is wont to do, there is a whole lot of depth to this question. Don't look at this question just on the surface. This is deep. John is full of deeps, and this is one of them. John intends us to fathom a question like this one. And don't think this question didn't deeply penetrate Andrew and John. I think that's why they kept following. Do you know what you want? Jesus knows what they want. He's wondering if they do. What are you seeking? Some people have never even thought about this. He's asking if John and Andrew know the answer. Do you know what you want? Do you know what you're seeking? So we point people toward Jesus. We invite people into fellowship with him. And then Jesus can get under the hood and do all kinds of things that are out of our hands to do. Things like assessing motives. Um, Years ago, I knew a man named Cub Taylor who was a... uh, he was a CEO of a Fortune 500 company in Columbia, Missouri, and uh, was an unbeliever at the time. A man named Larry Glabe, who was, worked with the Navigators in uh, uh, the city of Columbia there, befriended Cub, and they used to go golfing together. Uh, Larry Glabe was a, obviously a believer. And uh, Cub tells the fateful day, the story, that out on the ninth green, Larry Glabe just got right up, kind of friendly in his space, and said, Cub, you don't know what you believe. Now, Cub is is a leader of leaders. And yet, he just found himself undone by that statement that Larry made. He thought, I don't know what I believe. I have no idea what I believe reality is about. And Cub, for all of his influence and leadership ability, didn't know what he thought about the answer to that question. In this case, I think it was Jesus speaking through Larry, but you see this. Jesus assesses motives. These truths sink deep into people's hearts. They tend to bother us for a while, and they continue to um, encourage us to pursue Jesus. So Jesus says, what are you seeking? What do you want? Point people toward Jesus persistently. Invite them personally so Jesus can do heart work. Only Jesus can assess motives. Secondly, this one's a a brief one, Uh, only Jesus can change people's identities. Let's not forget this. In verse 42, Andrew invited Simon to meet Jesus, and what Jesus says to Simon changes him forever, because we don't know him as Simon. We know him as Peter, the name that Jesus gave him. You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, Kepha in in Aramaic. Uh, Peter is the Greek there, and it means rock, which is great. Jesus has a vision for Peter. Peter is unsteady at best. He's brash. He's impulsive. He's impetuous. Peter blows hot and cold. You see this throughout the story of the Gospels. He's still working some of these uh, things out. And yet Jesus looks down into his soul and sees something that he's going to create, an identity for Simon, an identity of steadiness and stability. He's unwavering He's rock solid, he's an apostle, he's a preacher, he's a shepherd. That moment with Jesus changed everything for Peter. How many of you who know Jesus would agree that you are not the same person you used to be before you met Christ? You have a new identity, the old is gone, the new has come. This can happen for people. This moment with Jesus 
was a game changer for Simon. He becomes Peter. So we point people toward Jesus persistently, invite them personally, because only Jesus can change identities. Third, only Jesus can judge people's character. Only Jesus can judge people's character. Now, the exchange with Nathaniel is interesting. Um, remember, Nathaniel's the skeptic. He's the tell-it-like-it-is cynic. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, Jesus came out of Nazareth. <laughs> In verses 47 to 49, this is wonderful. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus says to Nathanael, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now, this is kind of awkward. Um, Nathanael's basically just insulted Jesus' hometown. Jesus is not put off by this. He brushes it aside. In fact, he encourages him. He calls him an Israelite indeed. In the Old Testament, which of the patriarchs was renamed Israel? Who is that? It's Jacob, right? Jacob's name, anybody know what Jacob means? Yeah, it's, it's something like cheater or deceiver, okay? Jacob is a born scoundrel, and Jacob grows and changes in his walk with the Lord, so much so that uh, after his wrestling with the angel, the Lord uh, renames him Israel. And here in verse 47, Jesus calls Nathanael an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now, it's not an open and shut case, but I wonder if what Jesus is saying to Nathanael is something like this. One commentator put it this way. It was as if Jesus was saying, look, Israel without a trace of Jacob left in him. So Nathanael was skeptical, but it wasn't off-putting to Philip. Philip just said, well, bring it. Bring all of your skepticism to Jesus. You come and see. Jesus is not rattled either. Jesus is a perfect judge of character. And, and he likes Nathanael, I think. This is one of the neat things about this here. Warts and all. This had to have been an encouragement to Nathanael. When I do evangelism with people, one of the things that, that strikes me, one of the things I'm drawn to in unbelievers is their personalities. I'm not drawn to Jesus in them. There's no Jesus in them. But there's them in them. And they are fascinating people. And Jesus, I think, sees this. So many guys and gals worry that in order to become Christians, they have to abandon some vital aspect of their personality, some of their individual makeup. And I don't think so. I, even if people have edges, like sinful edges, those will get knocked off in time. Jesus knows how to figure that out. Just point people toward Jesus persistently. Invite them personally, because only Jesus can judge character perfectly. Lastly, only Jesus can connect people to heaven. Only Jesus can connect people to heaven. Verse 50 and 51. Now, these might strike you as especially strange, but this was beautiful uh, to a first century Jew, especially reading this. This is a wonderful nod toward a story in the Old Testament that Seth read for us, the story of Jacob in Genesis 28. Jacob has a dream in Genesis chapter 28, and uh, Genesis 28, 12 says, as he dreamed, behold, there was a ladder, a flight of steps, you could translate it, set up on the earth, and the top of it reached heaven, 
And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Okay, that's vivid. And it's very strange. The picture's just sort of there. Jacob says, wow, this is the gate of heaven. This is the house of God right here. And then the Genesis narrative moves on, and we don't see it again until here. The story has become known as Jacob's Ladder, a stairway to heaven. Two rock and roll songs have been written commemorating this chapter of the Bible, performed by Huey Lewis in the News and Led Zeppelin, respectively. This has got some cultural cachet to it. Nathaniel is amazed that when Jesus said he saw him under the fig tree, uh, he, was, he was stunned by that and confessed that Jesus is uh, the Messiah. And Jesus said to him, look, you're going to see greater things than these, Nathaniel. And he would. In just a matter of hours, he's going to watch water turn into wine. Later on, he's going to see blind people receive their sight and lame people walk. He's going to watch a dead man come out of a tomb. And why? Because of who Jesus is. Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's Jesus claiming about himself? We were doing this in the 9 o'clock hour with our Mount For You group. What's he claiming? He's claiming that he is the fulfillment of Jacob's dream. Jesus is like a ladder that connects earth to heaven. He's a flight of stairs that goes directly to Almighty God. In another place in John's Gospel, we're going to read in chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So why do we point people toward Jesus? Why do we invite them into our midst and to him? Only Jesus can connect people to heaven. No one else can do that. We can't do that. No one else can. We point people toward Jesus. We invite them. And I invite you today. Do you know him? Have you responded to Jesus in faith? You can. Jesus came to this earth to live the life that you cannot live. And he died a death on the cross, the death that you deserve to die because of your sin. He was raised on the third day, ascended into heaven, and is soon to return. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that in believing you may have life in his name. Do you believe? Believe it. Our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ began when five disciples were made in less than 48 hours. How did it happen? Same way it happens today. Like John the Baptist, have resolve. Point people toward Jesus persistently. Don't give up. You never know the day that God's going to pick up that witness and use it in a significant way. Invite people to Jesus personally. You may not be John the Baptist, but you're at least Andrew. You're at least Philip. Invite people into environments where they can connect with him because only Jesus assesses people's motives, changes people's identities, judges people's character, and connects them to heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the, the buffet of truths in front of us here in John's gospel. Lord, there's, there's so many wonderful realities 
to know and treasure and believe about Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that those among us who may not have a saving faith in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would do that impossible thing with man and do what is possible with God. Impart new spiritual life even now. Lord, cause people to turn away from their sins and to put their their full faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, those of us who know you, I pray that we would find ourselves in this story, that we would persistently, um, faithfully, with determination, share the gospel again like John the Baptist. And Lord, might you open a door. Lord, show us some fruit even this week. Give us encouragement. Help us to invite people into environments where they can be changed by Jesus who can do that hard work alone. And we will thank you for it. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.